Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following is a recording from our Hearing God and Prophecy Conference. I would like to dive into two particular questions. And these are ones that you're going to hear, you know, usually from the camp that says these things don't happen. Um, but here's the, the questions I want to answer. Do I have to know it's God before I prophesy? And if I'm sincerely trying to follow God and speak what God shows me and I get it wrong, should I be considered a false prophet? Do you want me to repeat those two again? Do I have to know that it's God? And if I'm sincerely following God and trying to speak on God's behalf when I prophesy and I get it wrong, am I a false prophet? Should I be considered a false prophet? And so this is one of those highly debated things. There are people on several sides of this debate. And uh, I obviously, I think you know my answers on this, but um, I would like to attempt to tackle these two highly theological and debated questions uh, by doing two different things. I want to look at the laws that were given to Israel regarding the prophets, which you're kind of in luck because the main ones are come from Deuteronomy, and that's what I've been going through systematically at my church every week. We've been teaching. Ever been to a church where they taught through Deuteronomy? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? You know, it's the book that Jesus quoted, through the, quoted from the most. Isn't that wild? It's really hard to understand some of Jesus' teachings if you don't know Deuteronomy. Anyway, that's largely where we're going to find ourselves tonight. And then after that, I want to see how those laws were carried out through the rest of the biblical history. Because if, if those laws were enacted, we want to know exactly what the repercussions were. Right? So we want to go see how these things played out. So um, for the first one, uh, how many of you had heard the teaching before that if a prophet gets it wrong, that person is a false prophet and should be stoned to death? That that's what they did in Israel. If a prophet got it wrong, they would stone that prophet. Any of you ever heard that? A lot of you are nodding your hands. This is the universal sign for, yeah, that's me. I heard that. Uh, I want others to see you, so that's why I do that. Um, so turn in your Bibles, if you have them, turn in your iPhones, uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 13, and if you don't have an iPhone, repent. Uh, we're going to look at the first major um, situation in the law where it talks about stoning false prophets. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. It says, suppose, and let me give you some context, actually, before we dive into this. Deuteronomy is often called the second law. Do you guys know why that is? No, the law was given in Mount Sinai, right? But, but then right before, now, now there's the third generation of Israelites that have been now in the desert. First two generations, the ones that, that originally had come out of Egypt, end up being cursed to die in the wilderness. And so it's the third generation that's actually going to cross over into the Jordan, uh, into the promised land. And even Moses himself doesn't get to go. And so here's Moses, the, the pastor of Israel, and he's wanting to warn them about what they're about to experience. Right? They're going to go into the other, other side. They're going to have to commit the conquest of Canaan, uh, overtake it, redeem it for God. Um, but they're also going to encounter a lot of wickedness. And so he's warning them on the front end. Now imagine this, like a father's final words to his kids. How many of you would agree, like, a father's going to want to impart, like, the most wisdom he has. Okay, well, that is what the Deuteronomy, book of Deuteronomy is. It's Moses, this person who, this is the last time he's going to see his family. 
and he wants to impart to them all that he knows about the law. It's called the second law because it's a series of three sermons where he's retelling the law, all of it in its entirety. Um, so here he is on this passage, Deuteronomy 13. He says, suppose a prophet or one who foretells by dreams should appear among you and show you a sign or wonder. And the sign or wonder should come to pass concerning what he said to you, namely, let us go and follow other gods, gods whom you've not known. Uh, let us serve them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer, for the Lord your God will be testing you to see if you love him with all of your mind and being. That's a, uh, he's re-quoting the Shema, right? It says, you must follow the Lord your God and revere only him, and you must observe his commandments, obey him, serve him, and remain loyal to him. As for the prophet or dreamer, he must be executed because he has encouraged rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, redeeming you from that place of slavery, and because he has tried to entice you away from the Lord your God has commanded you to go, in this way you must purge the evil from your midst. Um, I love this, this. I love Deuteronomy. I've been totally geeking out at my church teaching this every week uh, because you notice that the, the entire time he uses the second person when he's talking to this third generation that had left uh, Egypt. And he said, remember when he brought you out of Egypt. So what he's doing with Israel is he's inviting them into the history of their ancestors as though they themselves were rescued out of Egypt, as though they themselves sinned in the wilderness. And now he's preparing them like, hey, look, if there's a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he comes to you and he shares this vision or a dream uh, and it comes to pass, but he, then he says, hey, let's go worship other gods. What should you do? Purge the evil from your midst. So here's the question I have for you. The prophet that is to be killed, is it a prophet who gets it right or gets it wrong? Raise your hand if you say, gets it right. Look at it again. He predicts something that comes to pass. He dreams something that comes to pass. He performs a sign and a wonder. So is it the prophet who gets it right or gets it wrong? In this story, that's the false prophet. They're actually getting it right. Now, see, think of it. Somebody who's getting it wrong all the time, are you really going to be deceived by them? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's this thing called logic. That was my favorite class in college. I told you about it last night, right? Uh, no, the, what makes a false prophet so darn deceptive is the fact that he gets it right. And, and you think about this, I mean, like, in, in the, the garden, when uh, the serpent appeared to Eve, we're told that Eve was deceived. Why? So this is an interesting thing most people don't know about. Michael Heiser really, like, uh, he's an author, wrote a book called The Unseen Realm. Blew my mind when I read this. But in, in Hebrew, it talks about how the serpent, the word for it is nakash, and in Hebrew, they don't have vowels. And so you, so you would form a word, the vowels, based upon the other words around it, the sentence structure. And so you could have one word that could be several different words depending on how it was pronounced. You just had the consonants. So um, in this case, the word for serpent could actually be rendered three different ways. Uh, the word that's used, nakash, is used for a serpent, you know, an animal that, that sought to be the highest of all beings, but now it's creeping on the ground like a snake. And then it also is used for um, a city that was known in the ancient world for where they would harvest uh, and mine for shiny metals, copper, 
bronze, silver, gold. So that's it's a proper noun uh, for a serpent. A, a, not a proper noun, just a noun for a serpent. A proper noun for the name of a city where you get bright and shiny things. And then the other one was a verb for uh, using for, for the getting of a divi- giving of a divine oracle, divination. So imagine this. And actually, the, the author of Genesis is trying to use all three meanings in one, but you just can't render it that way in English. So get, the, get this. It's, it's a triple entendre. You know what that means? It's like uh, we, we do this in English all the time with like words like running. Okay, I, I went running this morning. That song has been running in my mind all day. See, that's the same word, but using different ways, entirely different meanings based upon the context around it. And then the triple entendre is where it means all three things at the same time. Like I, I had a, a buddy who was in a band, and I was a juvenile at the time, and unfortunately this is the only example I can think of of a double entendre, but I was like, you should write a song called You're in Trouble. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, some of you laugh. Thank you, all you other like immature guys in the room. All the girls were like, yeah. <laughs> so um, that's what's happening. You've got a, a bright and shiny one who's bringing a divine oracle who sought to be the highest of all beings will, will, but will lick up the dirt from the ground. Catching this? Why was she deceived? Because Satan comes as an angel of light carrying a divine message. Same thing with a false prophet. Like they, they, they are deceptive because they have power. They're deceptive because they predict things that come to pass. That's the nature of what a false prophet does. But when a pro- false prophet comes to you with these kind of signs and wonders or powerful messages, but what they're really trying to do is not lead you to Yahweh, the God of Israel, but rather away from him to worship other gods. So then here's, this, that's a key thing to note. What does a false prophet do? Well, he demonstrates real power, but leads you away from God. Okay, so there, there we have our first example. Now, most people, we, we tend to think like a false prophet, well, if, if they're false, they just got it wrong. Therefore, they're false. See, it's so easy to judge a false prophet. No. <laughs> if, they're, if they get it wrong, you're like, oh, okay, whatever, right? You're not scared of that person. You're scared of the one that's showing power but leading people away. Uh, in the New Testament, it says, hey, you'll know them by their fruit. One of the other things they'll do is they'll lead you into sin. Right? They're wolves in, in sheep's clothing. Okay. Um, I've seen this. I've seen real false prophets. Um, now, I don't know if... I, I don't think that people are just born that way. Uh, I think people become false prophets. I think it's pretty obvious when a false prophet is leading you to worship other gods. Like, that's a telltale sign. Or they're leading into, you into sin. Although I would say that's far more subtle. We're seeing that with all the scandals that are happening right now. Like these people who demonstrate these prophetic gifts and have these encounters, and yet they're leading people into sin. Okay? But I would say those are two big criteria. But this uh, leading you into sin or leading you to worship other gods is sometimes more subtle than we realize. Sometimes when these people are leading you away from God, they're actually leading you to themselves. And because of the power, you will think to question them is no different than questioning God. See why it's so subtle? Well, I don't want to question the prophet of God, but he's telling me to do this thing that just doesn't feel right. But I mean, he hears from God. I've seen the power. You know what I mean? So it's so easy to dismiss those things. And that's actually what um, one false prophet I know of used to do. And here's the crazy thing. This false prophet would come into a room, 
and he would go down a, a, a line of people. He would point out the first person, tell them their first and last name, tell them their address, tell them the disease they came with, prayed for them, and they would get healed. And then do it to the person right next to them, and then the person right next to them, and so on and so on, down a row of people. Now, that's real power. Some of you are going, well, how is it that they could, they could uh, uh, move in that kind of power and yet be a false? Well, Jesus talks about this, right? He, he, meets, he talks about these people who says, hey, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we uh, heal in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Which means there's people who have learned how to broker in the power of God, but are really not of him. Um, this prophet that I'm telling you about that moved in this kind of power, what he was also doing at the same time was grooming young men to abuse them. Eventually, he got caught. And it was just, it was like the whole world suddenly, when it came to prophecy, everybody was so, suddenly going, I don't know if I can trust anything prophetic after that. But that's the nature of a false prophet. That's why it's such a defiling ministry. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I remember um, my mentor, Jack, asking him about this particular false prophet. And I was like, Jack, you had to have seen signs of this. Like, you, you had to have seen signs of this at some point. Did you ever notice these things? He's like, yeah, I, I noticed some things. I was like, well, why did you overlook those things? He's like, I've never seen that kind of power before. I said, what do you mean? And he tells me a story about how he and his wife, Lisa, were driving down a car in a car. Um, Lisa was in the back seat, and this false prophet was in the front seat, and Jack, uh, Lisa asked him a question, and he answers it. And then a few minutes goes by, and he turns around and says to Lisa, he goes, because, Lisa, and then he answers a question she never asked. And it was such a peculiar, weird thing that Jack didn't think much of it, but then they all got out of the car, and he's looking at his wife, and Lisa is white as a ghost. He says, what's going on? She goes, do you not understand what just happened? He goes, no. She said, well, I, I asked him a question, and then he answered it, and then I simply thought another question. And then he answered that one, too. I mean, you wouldn't believe, like when you start seeing real power, you wouldn't believe how intoxicating it can be. But I'll also tell you, that doesn't guarantee that it's God. And, and honestly, here's the scary part, and this is what I'm going to say to some of you, because we, we're kind of like swinging the door wide open for the prophetic this weekend, right? I'm, that's my desire, and, and it's actually a biblical desire, right? Would that you all prophesy, Moses said to his people, right? And then the Lord seems to answer Moses's desire by pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Old men dream dreams. Young men see visions, right? And then Paul three times, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, two out of those three times, especially that you may prophesy. So, I mean, the beauty of it is that's what God wants for his church. He thinks it's one of the most powerful gifts, one of the gifts we should pursue above all the others, uh, and, and here's the crazy part. Some of you are really going to start moving in this gift. You're going to start listening to God, start hearing from him. But again, power can be so intoxicating. And when you start getting intoxicated by your own power and the things you see, pretty soon you hear your pastor say, hey, uh, I want you to do this. And you go, well, why should I listen to you? I hear God more than you do. See what I mean? So we call believing our own press. Right? We start to think much of ourselves just because we operate in a gift. Now, when Peter talks about using your gift, he says, use it as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. 
Gifts are not meant to be used to lord over others. They're meant to be used as stewards. And so I worry sometimes that some people could even become false when they start building their own empire rather than God's. So that's just my subtle warning. And I don't have it entirely all worked out theologically, but that's kind of one thing I suspect is possible. Um, When this false prophet... uh, he was going to go to California, and he told my mentor, Jack, that the day he arrives, there will be an earthquake. And sure enough, there was an earthquake. At the time, Jack thought it was a sign of God's uh, approval of this man. Uh, after, all the damage, or after everything was done, he then saw it as an omen of the damage that would be left in his wake. Jack would save this man. He was the most powerful man I'd ever seen. He was also the most wicked man I'd ever met. Isn't that wild? All right, let's go to the next passage. If you have your Bibles, turn into Deuteronomy 18. Now, this is going to be a retelling of the event that happened at Mount Horeb when when all the people of Israel are about to uh, meet with God after just escaping out of Egypt. So this is their first time to meet with their God, who's rescued them out of, the, out of slavery, out of bondage, out of uh, the tyranny of the Egyptians and the Pharaoh. And now they're there with God, they're meeting with God, but they're terrified. And so this is a retelling of that story. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 through 22. says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This is in accordance with what happened at Mount Horeb in the day of the assembly. You asked the Lord your God, please do not make us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore or see his great fire anymore, lest we die. Now, this is an interesting thing because here's the people of Israel who are finally getting to meet with their God, uh, but they're terrified when they meet him, and they're afraid that they're going to die being in his presence. And so what do they say? You know what, Moses, you go up there without us. You go listen to God and just tell us what he says. Um, I think the same thing is true today. So many of us would rather other people go and read their Bibles for them. So many of us would rather go, have other people go and hear God for us rather than having our own relationship with him. No different back then. Uh, but for very different reasons. We don't have the threat of death every time we meet with him. It says, then the Lord said to me, what they've said is good. I'll raise up a prophet like you for them from among your fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them whatever I command. I will personally hold responsible anyone who then pays no attention to the words that prophet speaks in my name. But if any prophet presumes to speak anything in my name that I've not authorized him to speak, or speaks in the names of other gods, well, that prophet must die. Now, if you say to yourselves, how can we tell the message is not from the Lord? Well, whenever a prophet speaks in my name and the prediction is not fulfilled, then I have not spoken it. The prophet has presumed to speak it, so you need not fear him. That's interesting, right? Because it kind of feels like there's a mixed message in there. Like, hey, if this prophet speaks something, then you are held accountable to it. You need to listen to that prophet. But if the thing he speaks doesn't come to pass, well, he's spoken it presumptuously, and that prophet is going to die. Well, how do you know if he's speaking presumptuously? Well, the thing he says doesn't come to pass. So don't be afraid of him. Okay, which one is it? Is he going to die 
or should we just not be afraid of them? What's the outcome here? So there's a couple of um, theories about this, two basic theories. Uh, and I don't actually think these two theories are mutually exclusive. I actually think they could both be true at the same time. Uh, the first theory, and, and one that I think is undoubtedly true, that and historically has been true, is that when Moses is talking about a prophet, he says, uh, he mentions a prophet like me from among your brethren. So this is not just any old prophet that's going to come about. This is a prophet like Moses. Okay, well, so what are some unique things about Moses? Well, Moses wasn't just a prophet. He was also a leader of the people of Israel. So he was sort of a prophet leader, so to speak. But not only that, there's a number of other weird things about Moses. Check this out. Um, I skipped out of my notes. That's right. Okay, so when they say a prophet like Moses, we're talking about maybe an eschatological figure. This prophet who's going to come in a later time, who's going to be like Moses and operate in similar kind of power as Moses. So what are the unique, unique things about Moses? Well, this is interesting. When it talks about Moses and his ability to hear God versus Miriam and Aaron, here's what he says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 through 8. It says, The Lord said, Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream. My servant Moses is not like this. He is the most faithful in all my household. When I speak with him, it's face to face, openly and not in riddles. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Okay, hold on a second. This is a mind-blowing passage, okay? Many of you are going, well, why doesn't God seem to speak more clearly? Well, guess what? He never did with any of the prophets except Moses. Moses is the only prophet that we know of that got to speak with God face-to-face -face as man speaks with man. All the other prophets, dreams, riddles, dark sayings, things shrouded in mystery. Like even Jeremiah. Do you remember when Jeremiah, he hears the Lord, he says, uh, Lord says, look over there. What do you see? He says, oh, I see the budding of an almond tree. And the Lord says to him, you see correctly. Uh, and then he uses the Hebrew words for budding of an almond tree as a play on words to talk about the future of Israel. God would speak in, in riddles, play on words even. He would use visionary things to, to give sort of a, a metaphor or a, a parable. He would speak in dreams, but with Moses face to face. Matter of fact, we'll see this face-to-face uh, -face language used again in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, how many of you have heard, well, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, you know, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will be done away. And people will say, well, that means that when the Bible came, all the gifts ceased. Any of you heard that teaching? Okay, a couple of you. Um, well, the problem is, is when uh, Paul is talking about what it will look like for the gifts to cease, he could not be talking about the Bible. Do you know why? Because he says, here's what your experience will be like. For now you see in a mirror dimly, then you shall see face to face. Same expression used to talk about Moses. So do you guys feel like you see God face to face because you have a Bible? No, but there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus returns, and we will see him face to face. As a matter of fact, we're told this is one of the great eschatological expectations of the end times, is that the Lord is going to come back, and when we'll see him, we will be made like him, for we will see him just as he is. 
It's going to be this day where suddenly, like, the, the graying of my face ceases. No longer do I have gray hair. No longer does my back ache me anymore. In fact, my whole body will be transformed. And this, this thing that has this propensity towards wickedness and sin, gone in an instant. I will be like the Lord Jesus. I will be holy. I will be separate. I will be an instrument of God and not an instrument of sin. And so, and the beauty of it is, it says, and those of us who have this hope fixed on him purifies ourselves just as he is pure. So there's this aspect even now when we're, we're longingly looking to see his face, where just the, the, the gaze even in our mind's eye causes us to be sanctified and purified. Isn't that cool? So there's this figure that's going to be like Moses. And it seems pretty obvious that this isn't Joshua, who's the next prophet leader of Israel, because even when Joshua gets appointed right there at the end in Deuteronomy 34, here's what it says. It says, now Joshua, the son of Nun, he was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had placed his hands on him, and the Israelites listened to him and did just what the Lord had commanded Moses. So this is interesting, right? The next prophet leader has come to play, right? And it's now Joshua, who's going to be the leader, the prophet leader over, over Israel, but yet it says these words. No prophet ever again arose in Israel like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face. He did all the signs and wonders the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all of his servants in the whole land, and he's displayed great power and awesome might in the view of all of Israel. No prophet had arisen in Israel like Moses, who knew the Lord face to face. So then one's got to wonder, who is this prophet that's like Moses? Um, it says this of, of, of Jesus. Well, actually, so there is this expectation because of Deuteronomy 18 that this prophet like Moses is going to come back. And so John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and he's baptizing tons of people in the wilderness. And so the people are like, man, is, is this the Messiah, this one we've been waiting on? So they come up to John the Baptist, and they start asking him questions. They say, now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leader sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Who is the prophet? So there's all these eschatological figures that were supposed to come. A prophet like Moses. Right? There's this guy who's going to come, he's going to be just like Moses, and he's known as the prophet. They also thought Elijah was going to come, and there was going to be a Messiah or a king who's going to be like David. He's going to rescue his people out of the tyranny from under the Roman Empire. And yet, John the Baptist is saying, that's not me. And then uh, in Acts, after the Lord has, um, has risen and has ascended and taken his seat on the throne, this is what Peter will say to all of the Sanhedrin. Uh, this is Acts chapter 3, verse 22. It says, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must obey him in everything he tells you. Every person who does not obey that prophet will be destroyed and thus removed from the people. So Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18, and then he says, this man Jesus, whom you crucified, he was him. Like he flat out says it. He, he says, this is the guy. And you killed him just like every other prophet that we've killed. Hebrews will say this. 
This is Hebrews 3, 3 through 6. Again, he will quote uh, from the Old Testament, this time from Numbers, the passage we read earlier about Moses. It says, For he has come to deserve greater glory than Moses, just as the builder of the house deserves greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken, but Christ is a faithful as a son over God's house. So remember how it says, why did Moses get to speak with God face to face? It says he was the most faithful in all of God's household. And yet, Jesus was the one who was ultimately faithful in God's household. He was the new prophet like Moses. Um, so that's a pretty compelling case for an eschatological figure. How many of you would agree with me? Okay. The other theory, and this one's pretty dang plausible too. It's really frustrating, um, is that when, when Moses is talking about this prophet that's going to come like him, there's a context before this. And anytime you want to know for sure if something means what some pastor says it means, go read the verses before it and go read the verses after it, okay? Same thing, like when you read the word therefore, ask yourself the question, what's it there for? Go read before, right? Or this is another thing, when you read the New Testament, if you really want to understand what Paul is saying when he says, as it is written, and he quotes some passage from the Old Testament, you will not understand what it means unless you go back to the Old Testament and read it, okay? It's a hyperlink. It's meant to make you go back there and look at the whole story, so that way you can put it in context. So the other theory is this. Um, when Moses gives these words, it's in a section of Deuteronomy where Moses is sort of telling the people of Israel, before you go into the land of, of Canaan, to the promised land of milk and honey where, where God pours out his rains, unlike Egypt where you have to collect water, where the, the, the land itself soaks up the water and produces things and you have food that's just naturally there, unlike Egypt where you have to irrigate and farm. He says, when you go to this place, here's some expectations you may need to know. There's going to be four different kinds of leaders in the land. And he lists off the four main offices uh, that are going to sort of govern the people of Israel. He mentions the elders who will also function as judges. And so then he gives them standards like, hey, here's what you should expect of these elders. Here's good elders. Here's bad elders. And almost every time he warns the people, make sure you remember the poor, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. Okay? So he mentions the judges that are going to come. Then he mentions the uh, priest that will come. Again, here's a good priest. Here's a bad priest. And the, and the, the priest who would also serve as like the, the Supreme Court in Israel. And then he mentions a number of various kings that are going to come. And again, he says, here's the standards. There's going to come this day where you're going to want a king and be like the other nations around you. And he says, when that day comes, this is the kind of king that you should look for. And so he gives standards for what that king should look like when they're in Israel. And so then he talks about prophets. Okay, so then the question is, is like, well, is he talking about an eschatological person or is he talking about the next leader, prophet leader in Israel? Well, or maybe it's both. I mean, think about it. When you look at the other offices, let's take the judge. Were there any perfect judges in the old covenant? Oh, well, so then is it talking about an eschatological figure? Well, yeah, right? Who's the one who's worthy to judge all mankind? Who's the only perfect judge? <laughs> all right. Uh, or were any of the priests perfect? 
No, no, they would sacrifice a bull or a goat or a lamb to make atonement for the sins of Israel. Um, But this priest would be a high priest, and he would provide a human sacrifice that was uh, of the infinite worth, the only one that could actually make atonements for the sins of all mankind. He was a perfect priest. And when you look at the kings of Israel, were any of them perfect? Some of you are like, well, man, David, you know, he had a real heart after God. Yeah, he did. He also stole a man's wife and had the man murdered. And yet we do have a perfect king who's coming back to reign and touch down in Jerusalem to reign over all the world. And soon all the nations, all the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of Jesus. And so then we get to the prophets. Was there any perfect prophets? No, not until Jesus. So all of those positions are eschatological figures. So what do you do with this stuff? Well, I think it applies to both. So then we're not really sure what to do then, are we? Um, How are we to apply Deuteronomy 18? Well, my my guess is that passage isn't just talking about any prophet that was going to lead Israel next. It was talking about, or, or any prophet that arose in Israel, it's talking about specifically prophet leaders of Israel, and then also one particular prophet that would come. So it's a both and. After Moses would come this lineage of prophets, you've got Joshua next in line. And the people of Israel were expected to listen to the words of Joshua, right? They had to obey him. And so it was important that they had some sort of rubric to judge whether or not Joshua was still being obedient to Yahweh. Um, But I don't think that's the case with any old prophet. And and I'm going to show you this. So then the next thing I want to do is we need to look at biblical history. I told you we're getting a little more technical tonight. We're going to look at biblical history to see how they carried out Deuteronomy 18. All right. Um, if you have your Bible, open up to Jeremiah chapter 23. To survey the biblical history of prophets in Israel, I want to start with talking about the prophets that were unlike Moses. We have examples. This is Jeremiah 23. Let's look at, I'm going to read 9 through 14, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 25 through 32. Here's what the Lord says concerning the false prophets. My heart and mind are deeply disturbed. All right, this is God speaking through Moses. I tremble all over. I'm like a drunk person, like a person who's had too much wine because the way the Lord and his holy word are being mistreated. For the land is full of people unfaithful to him. They live wicked lives. They misuse their power. So the land is dried up because it's under a curse. The pastures in the wilderness are withered. Moreover, the Lord says, both the prophets and priests are godless. I've even found them doing evil in my temple. So the paths they follow will be dark and slippery. They will stumble and fall headlong, for I will bring disaster on them. A day of reckoning is coming for them. The Lord affirms it. The Lord says, I saw the prophets of Samaria doing something that was disgusting. They prophesied in the name of the God, Baal, and led my people, Israel, astray. But I see the prophets of Jerusalem doing something just as shocking. They're unfaithful to me, and they continually prophesy lies. So they give encouragement to people who are doing evil, with the result that they do not stop their evil doing. 
I consider all of them as bad as the people of Sodom, and the citizens of Jerusalem as bad as the people of Gomorrah. Now look down at verse 25. It says, the Lord says, I've heard what those prophets are, are prophesying and how they're prophesying lies in my name and are saying, they're saying, I've had a dream, I've had a dream. Those prophets are just prophesying lies. They're prophesying the delusions of their own mind. How long will they go on plotting to make my people forget who I am through the dreams they tell one another? This is just as bad as what their ancestors did when they forgot who I am by worshiping the God Baal. Let the prophet who has had a dream, go ahead and tell his dream. Let the person who's received my message report that message faithfully. What is like straw cannot compare to what is like grain. I, the Lord, affirm it. My message is like a fire that purges dross. It is like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. I, the Lord, affirm it. So I, the Lord, affirm that I am opposed to the prophets who steal messages from one another that they claim are from me. I, the Lord, affirm that I am opposed to those prophets who are using their own tongues to declare the Lord declares. I, the Lord, affirm that I am opposed to those prophets who dream up lies, report them. They are misleading my people with their reckless lies. I did not send them. I do not commission them. They are not helping this people at all. I, the Lord, affirm it. And I tell you, this is what we are seeing in our day. Just go look up prophecies for the next year on YouTube. It's like Christian horoscope gone rampant. They are prophesying and they're stealing words from one another. And here's the really bad, bad thing about it. Like if you look at the, the criteria, what these false prophets do, check this out. Three things that I, I observed in these passages right here. They commit evil sins and they lead others into sin. They lead people away from God, often to other gods. They give encouragement to the people who are doing evil with the result that they do not stop doing their evil doing. Do I need to repeat that? Yeah. Okay. They commit evil sins and lead others into sin. They lead people away from God and often to other gods. And this is the one I think is the most common that we see today. They give encouragement to people who are doing evil so that they do not stop doing the evil that they're doing. This is the story of Hananiah, and it's about forced uh, servitude that was going to happen to the Israelites. The context in this passage is that Moses has taken this oxen yoke and put it on his shoulders. And it's what they would use to, to put on the ox to get it to, to pull the... the um, whatever you call that thing, a wagon or something. Uh, usually it was for farming. I can't remember what that thing's called. So he takes the yoke of the oxen, puts it on his neck, comes to the king of Israel and gives him a message. Basically, the message is this. You, king of Israel, and all of Israel are going to be put under forced servitude to the king of Babylon. Now, this is the crazy thing is, the king had just murdered the prophet Uriah for giving the same message. And yet here is Jeremiah carrying the word of the Lord. You want to be a prophet? Let me just tell you right now, sometimes being a prophet ain't so easy. Jeremiah in particular, I do not admire him one bit. He, to me, had the worst job of all of Israel. Um, so then Hananiah gets up and prophesies. And this is, this is crazy. He comes, and he, 
It says that God is going to break the yoke of servitude in just two years. He comes to the king and says, Ah, yes, we will be in servitude just as Jeremiah says. But it will only be two years, so don't worry. Well, what's that going to cause the people of Israel to do? Are they going to repent? Here's, the, here's how Jeremiah responds. <laughs> you can see the sarcasm in, in Jeremiah's voice. Uh, he says to the prophet Hananiah, this is Jeremiah 28, 15 through 17. Listen now, Hananiah. The Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you are going to die because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. Something that's important to note, when they mention the months, same year, seventh month, it's actually trying to tell you something more than just the date. Okay? Here's Jeremiah saying, you're going to be taken away in, in divorce servitude. It's going to be a long time. But then Hananiah says, ah, it'll only be two years, no big deal. Guess what? The date and time was two months later. You prophesied two years, now let me just show you that you're wrong by dying in two months. And that's how Hananiah died. Uh, this is Ahab and Zedekiah. They're basically telling, you know, Mo, uh, Jeremiah comes and says, listen, when you get taken away into Babylon, uh, Babylon into captivity, plant vineyards. Make your home there, because you're going to be there for a long time. So then Ahab and Zedekiah, they come in and well, they prophesy just the, the opposite. So here's Moses saying, hey, don't rebel against Babylon. Just let them conquer you, because this is the Lord's judgment. Right? Now, now think about this. If you're God and you're disciplining your kids, like the fact is they've already broken the covenant. The fact is Israel was doing all kinds of wickedness at that time sacrificing on their children on the altar of other gods, and yet God still loves Israel. And so he's like, look, you're going to be conquered. And here's the thing. It would be better for you if you allow that to happen and don't fight against the king of Babylon. It would, be, it would go better for you if you just submit to it. This is God's judgment for you. Can you see how like, this is like a parent saying to your kid, hey, you're not going to like this. It's going to hurt. Let it happen or it will be worse. Okay, well then Ahab and Zedekiah, they say just the opposite. They say, no, 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 Babylon, they're not going to win. So this is Jeremiah's response to them. The Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, also has something to say about Ahab, son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, who are prophesying lies to you and claiming my authority to do so. I will hand them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He will execute them before your eyes. And all the exiles of Judah who are in Babylon will use them as examples when they put a curse on anyone. They will say, may the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted to death in the fire. This will happen to them because they have done what is shameful in Israel. They've committed adultery with their neighbor's wives and have spoken lies while claiming to speak my authority. They have spoken words that I have not commanded them to speak, and I know what they have done. I have been a witness to it. Thus says the Lord. Okay, what did I say? What do they do? They give encouragement so that you don't repent from the evil you're committing. They are sinners and lead others into sin. We see what false prophets look like throughout the history of Israel. So now let's take a look at prophets that are like Moses. Ones that are righteous, that do good. And let's see how they get handled. 
Let's check this out. This is Nathan. So remember, I asked you the question, what do you do with a prophet who is sincerely trying to serve God and speak what God is saying, but makes a mistake? Do you treat him like Ahab and Zedekiah? This is Nathan, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to summarize this because I'm going super long. So David is, is looking at the wealth he's, he's accumulated. He's got so- sovereignty over his nation. He's got peace on every border. And now he's looking at the, the house that he lives in. It's like this magnificent palace. And he's looking over at the ark of God. And he's going, why is it that I live in this and God dwells in that? You know what I would do? I'm going to build a house for God. And so David, you know, what he, before a king of Israel would do anything big, he would always consult the prophet, right? Because the prophet leader, at the end of the day, a good righteous king wants to follow the words that come from God. So he consults with Nathan. He tells Nathan his plan. You know what Nathan says to him? Go and do all that is in your heart, O, o king. The Lord your God is with you. Now, how many of you would agree when a king goes to a prophet to get instruction He's trying to get the word of the Lord. And then Nathan speaks to him and tells him, the Lord your God is with you. Which, by the way, this is not the only time someone will prophesy and not use the words, thus saith the Lord. Instead, they'll use the words, the Lord your God is with you. So he uses those words. This seems like a clear word from the Lord. Well, then later that night, Nathan has a dream. And in the dream, the Lord rebukes Nathan and corrects him. He says, hey, David is a man of bloodshed. He cannot build a house for me, right? We remember what David did. He had murdered Uriah and stole his wife. So he says, instead, I will allow his son to do this for me. And so Nathan has to come back and and correct the word he gave to David, saying, sorry, David, you can't do it. Uh, But God has said that your son can. Solomon will be the one to build this temple. Well, poor Nathan. David grabs a rock. All right, man. Well, it's unfortunate. It's good to know you. Does he do that? No. No, no. That's the end of the word. Right. Because what is Nathan's intent? What kind of prophet is Nathan? He's, he's a true prophet of God. And we, as we step out in prophecy, I mean, here's the crazy thing. You have all of these Old Testament prophets that are doing just crazy, wonky things. And does the Lord just say, you know what? Forget prophecy. We're done with it. No more prophecy. You guys are making way too much mess of it. Is that what he does? No, actually, he didn't just throw, he didn't throw away the gift of prophecy. In fact, he does just the opposite. And he pours his spirit out on all flesh. Isn't that wild? And first... Uh, and Jeremiah 32 says, um, Jeremiah said, The Lord's message came to me. Hanamel, the son of your uncle Shalom, will come to you soon. He will say to you, Buy this field that's in Anathoth, uh, for you have the right of redemption. So basically what's happening is, it says the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, and then tells him what, what, what he wants. Like there's this field, and it's in your family lineage, and in fact you're the one who's next in line. You should be able to redeem that field for your family. And so he gets up in accordance with the word of the Lord. He makes his way towards Anathoth, and then he runs into his cousin. But the Bible calls it his uncle's son. I don't know why. It's like, there's a word for that called cousin. Uh, And his uncle's son says, hey, there's that field in Anathoth. You have the right of redemption to purchase it. Go and buy the field. It's yours. And then it says these interesting words. Then I knew it was 
the Lord. If Jeremiah, his knowing of it being the Lord, was after the fact he did what the Lord said, should it be any different for us? Now, this is most of us when it comes to prophetic ministry. We hear God, and then we start to step out and go, oh, I hope this is God. And then you only know after the doing of it, when it whether it is him or not. Now, check this out. I'm, I'm in a church in, in Denver, Colorado. I was living in Texas at the time. I had traveled up to, to preach at a church there. And in the middle of my sermon, this name pops into my head out of nowhere. It's uh, Sally. I'm like, hey, is there a Sally in the room? Then another thought pops in my head. She doesn't know how to pray. I want to help her with that. Is there a Sally in the room? It's like, nobody's called Sally anymore. And I said, you don't know how to pray anymore. The Lord wants to help you with that. And that's all I had. When this woman comes running down to the front, about 300 people in the room, she comes running down the front, and she comes to the stage. I'm like, oh, this must be Sally. I'm like, okay, hey, Sally, you know. And she says, you don't understand. My name's not Sally. And I'm going, I don't understand uh, at all. What are you doing up here? She says, well, uh, I don't go to church here. Nobody here would know this about me. But whenever I go to a coffee shop, I always order my coffee, and when they ask me my name, I tell them the alias Sally. Uh, it's just a little thing I used to do to be funny. There's only two girlfriends of mine that would know that about me. They even gave me a coffee mug with the name Sally on it. Um, she goes, I was on my way here because I heard you were going to be preaching, and I was in the, the car, and I was praying and saying, God, uh, would you please speak to me? Would you have this man call me out by name? But don't call me by my real name. Call me Sally. And then the very next words out of her mouth were, I do not know how to pray anymore. Is there a Sally in the room? That's odd. Nobody's name is Sally. Uh, you don't know how to pray anymore. God wants to help you with that. I mean, imagine this. I find out later she had just been going through really rough time. And this is most of us. We hit a really dark spot. And it's not that we need God to fix everything. We just need to know that he knows. That, that, that he actually knows about our lives and that he's watching over us despite the, the chaos in our world. And this is where she was at. And God steps down from heaven and says, and, and here's the thing, when I got that word, not a booming voice. Matter of fact, I did, I'm like, if I say this and I get it wrong, I'm going to look crazy. Uh, but here goes, Sarah, Sally in the room. You don't know how to pray anymore. God wants to help you with that. Um, Samuel's called to be a prophet. He's lying down at bed. He's an eight-year-old, just a kid. It says that the, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to Samuel. And then suddenly he hears his name called while everybody's in bed, Samuel. So he gets up and he goes over to Eli's room, says, hey, uh, here I am, you called me. He doesn't. Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So he goes back to his room, goes back to sleep. Here's it a second time. Samuel makes his way into Eli's room. He's like, hey, Eli, you called me. Here I am. And then says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Happens a third time. He goes back to Eli's room. He says, uh, here I am. You called me. Eli, at this point, kind of figures out what's going on. He says, the next time you hear your name called, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Now, people say you can't train in prophecy. Well, what do you call that? 
Like literally, a prophet telling him, go and listen to him. This is the beginning of your prophetic call. So he goes back, and he lies down, and sure enough, God speaks his name for a fourth time. Here's the interesting thing. Did Samuel know it was God those first three times? Do you expect to? Any of you better at it than Samuel? You know, what's interesting is when the scriptures talk about Samuel, it says that none of his words fell to the ground. Why did they mention that? Yeah, what, what, what the author is trying to say is that there was something unique about Samuel that's not true about every other prophet that's risen in Israel. None of Samuel's words fell to the ground, unlike other prophets. It's, it's superfluous to say that if all the prophets had all their words never fall to the ground. Um, if it was this way for Samuel, then shouldn't it be the same way for us? We see similarly in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus... He speaks. He says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice from heaven speaks and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It says, some people heard it thunder. Some thought the voice of an angel had spoken to them. And yet, who had spoken? Again, a lot of different people having a very different experience, but the reality was, the fact of it was, it was God speaking. I wish God was super clear to all of us, but it's never been that way. Again, I think of what John Wimber said to my uh, mentor, Jack. You know, why does God speak in such flimsy ways? I don't know, Jack, but I've had a, a much better success at adjusting my ways to how God speaks than trying to get him to speak in ways that I would like to listen. And so it is for all of us. Now, do you think that, I mean, here's the thing. If a person should be considered a false prophet just because they got something wrong, why don't we have that same standard for teachers? Okay, I, we got a couple pastors in the room. Nate, stand up real quick. Uh, Justin, stand up real quick. I'm sorry. I'm going to out you right now. Have you ever taught something from the Bible, said it was the word of the Lord, and been wrong about it? Now, Nate, what about you? Yeah, you're all good. Right, right, right. Now he's also just committed one of the uh, sins of breaking the Ten Commandments. Bearing false witness. Uh, okay, we wouldn't call them a false teacher for that. Why? Okay, when they're teaching and they teach something that's not true, are they trying to lead you away from God or to Him? And same thing with people who are prophesying today. Um, if your goal is to, to report what God is saying to others, if you're trying to lead people to Jesus, then I, I'm not going to call you a false prophet just because you got something off. Remember yesterday I told you the story. Um, we've got the, the whiteboard over there. I talked about the revelation, interpretation, application. And I mentioned that story about the guy who was a lawyer. Did I tell you that story yesterday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, did I hear from God? Okay, but did I speak God's word accurately? No. Was there any presumption on my part? Did I say something? Did I presume anything? Yes, I did. Uh, and so it'll be for all of us when we're prophesying. Like it or not, when God speaks, he speaks inerrantly. But when he speaks through you, that's where it gets all messed up. <laughs> because we mess it up along the way. And, and I'll just say this. If you want to know what some of the areas are where we can mess them up, 
I'll just give you a few just pitfalls in the prophetic, if you will. Any area in your life where you have a wrong view of God will cause you to prophesy wrongly. Okay, think of it this way. If you think God is a cosmic cop just waiting to pounce on you for your sin, what do you think your prophetic ministry is going to sound like? Any of you ever, like, very first time you ever saw somebody who's quote-unquote a prophet, you're like, I don't know if I want to go to that. I'm going to call out my sins in front of everybody, right? right? Again, if you think that's what God is like, like a cosmic cop waiting to pounce on you, then what do you think your prophetic ministry is going to sound like? Right? If you're filled with pride and you think, I really am the prophet, what's that going to look like when it comes to your relationship with the church? So here's the thing. I would, I would never listen to some roving prophet who is not a member in a local community. That's going to offend some people. Okay, but God did not baptize us in his spirit to put us in the body of Christ so that we could do it on our, own, on our own. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. And the fact is, your prophetic gift doesn't make you the leader of a church. In fact, it just makes you a member. Now, it'd be wonderful if we had a, an elder at my church who also happened to be a prophet. Praise God if he would bring somebody who's qualified to be a, a, an elder and also happens to be a gifted prophet. But in the meantime, my elders are still going to run the church. That's who God has appointed to lead the communities. So, um, again, other areas, if you have sin in your life, uh, habitual sin that you're unrepentant for and unconfessed, that can also affect your prophetic ministry. Any area of weakness or insecurity in your life is an area that could defile your prophetic ministry. Think of it this way. If you're struggling financially, don't be prophesying to people about money. Get my point? If you're struggling in relationship, don't be prophesying to people about their spouses or about their mates or about their relationships. Matter of fact, let me just give you a couple of ground rules, especially as we're doing this in the beginning. Don't prophesy mates, dates, babies, and finances. Just stay out of that realm until you get a little more accuracy under your belt and you feel fairly confident than those other things if you're ever going to give them. Now, I have given words about babies before, and I've, I've had babies miraculously be birthed. Um, but that's not a common thing, and I try to stay away from that. And I especially stay away from relational words, by and large, because the fact is it takes uh, two people to make a marriage work. So I just, especially in the beginning, stay away from that stuff, okay? Learn how to cultivate a relationship with God where you hear his voice regularly. And then always, with your prophetic ministry, because we are so fickle, we are so susceptible to deceive ourselves and muddle up what God says. Just use it in humility. Give it as a gift of the Spirit, not as a way to control others. Again, Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. There are so many bad sermons on what quenching the Spirit is, but it's right there in the text. Quenching the Spirit has nothing to do with how you lead worship. Okay, Quenching the Spirit has to do with despising prophecy. It says, don't quench the spirit. Well, how would we do that? Don't despise prophecy. And so then what's, why would you despise a gift that God has given? It's good, right? Because we misuse it. We misuse it or we abuse it. And so what, is, what does God tell the people through, through Paul? Hold fast to what is good, abstain from what is evil. Every prophecy is meant to be weighed and sifted and judged. So I'm trying to give you all the little caveats because it's like, here's the thing. <laughs> There's a, a proverb that says, where there are oxen in the stall, uh, there is a mess to clean. 
But the fact is, there's a lot of production that come from the oxen. Okay? The prophetic gift is kind of like that. It is powerful when it is done rightly. But when you're just beginning in it, there's also a lot of messes to clean up. And, and here's the tough thing. I speak to the, the leaders in the community. Uh, your job as a pastor in this community is janitorial in its nature. <laughs> because we sheep, we are messy and we hurt each other all the time. And, and it's our job as pastors to shepherd and help the sheep. And we help them to clean up their own messes. Does that make sense? So don't throw it out just because people make mistakes. Just simply show them a better way. Um, all right, I'm going to give you one last little bit on this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. I'm teaching so long. I just feel like if I don't give you all the information, then I'm like, kind of like handing a child a gun. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I hope I don't sound that condescending. I, I don't mean it that way. I just, I know the mistakes I made. So, um, you know, uh, how many of you are familiar with the passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 13? Okay. Where do you most often hear that pa passage quoted? Okay. This is an interesting thing. Uh, did you know that that passage has nothing to do with marriage? Didn't you ever think it's kind of weird when, when the priest gets up there and he says, uh, if I speak with the tongues of angels... Like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> it just seems so out of place in a wedding. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with marriage. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, Paul starts off that chapter saying, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to remain ignorant. And then he teaches about what the gifts are. And then right at the end of that chapter, or if you skip over to chapter 14, do you know what it's about? It's about how we use the gifts in the assembly of the brethren. So if chapter 12 is about the gifts and chapter 14 is about the gifts, what do you think chapter 13 might be about? <laughs> the gifts. And so he says, hey, I show you a better way. And then he gives this beautiful passage about love and all of this hyperbolic language, right? If I don't just have tongues of men, but tongues of angels, right? But I don't have love, I'm just a loud sound. If I don't just get a few words of knowledge, but I know all mysteries, without love, it's meaningless, right? If I, if, I, if I give my body over to be burned, but have not love, worthless sacrifice. So what are the gifts about? The gifts of the, the Spirit are about a way to love people with the power of God. I mean, think about healing, for instance. Uh, any, any of you got kids in the room? Okay. Uh, ever been in that place where your kid is sick and in pain, and you're just like, Ah, I got to do something. Like, you know that feeling. Like, you would gladly take the pain on yourself if you could stop that pain for them. Like, when you have kids in pain, it's like the worst pain ever. Like, I would rather have the pain myself than watch my kids suffer from it. Okay. That's a time in your life when you feel absolutely powerless. And that's why God has given us the gifts of the Spirit. You see, we love people, and we just wish we could do something about our love for them. And so God says, here you go. Don't know how to pray? Struggling? Like, I just, I just feel like I need to pray. I don't even have the words, though, and I don't want to just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Boom. Gift of tongues. Somebody's needing encouragement. They're at a, at a, at a major point in time where they're struggling to trust God and have faith. Boom. Prophetic word. How did you know that about me? Wow, God is so good. He sees me. Right? They're suffering and sick. 
boom, power of God, gift of healing, pain is gone. That's what the gifts of the Spirit are for. They're, they're not meant to be this like, oh, wow, look at me. It's just a way to love people. And this is the beauty of it is it doesn't have to be contained here in the church. I mean, you, you see somebody at a cash register and you say, hey, how are you doing today? Oh, whatever. Huh, let me pray for you. You, you have no idea what kind of product, productivity could happen if you start taking your gifts into the marketplace and just giving them away to people you meet on the streets, people you see in the marketplace, see people you see in the coffee shop. Do it in your workplace. Thank you for listening to this session from the Hearing God and Prophecy Conference. To find other sessions as well as our weekly messages, find us at opendoorpagosa.com.